back to the Pedestrian Podcast. We start the quest to 300 uh, with myself, Stuart Court, and Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? Slightly flustered, given the uh, <laughs> uh, ever so slight programming uh, balls up, I think we call it over here. But apart from that, all is well, all is well. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so episode 201. Um, I'm not too sure why this is uh, this week's guest first appearance on the on the pod. He's covered the team for several, most of our time, if not all of our time as a pod. Uh, ESPN's Brady Henderson, welcome to the Possession Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I I, uh, I appreciate you guys and admire you guys for breaking the news earlier in free agency <laughs> that the Seahawks were uh, re-signing. I think it was Nick Ballore was the one you guys got. So you scooped all of us on the beat. Nice job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 funny, the funny story about that is that he told me about two months ago that when he'd resign, he'd let me know and we can break the news. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, all right, very good. And he Instagram messaged me that night saying, all right, you got the scoop, I've signed. And I said, oh my God, that's amazing. Can we break it? And he waited an hour and a half to get back to me. <laughs> and I typed his name about nine, ten times into Twitter every two or three minutes to see if someone else had got the scoop. But uh, just just in case, but we managed to get it. And uh, our 15 minutes of fame, the ESPN app notifying people in Seattle of, of our, our scoop was probably the highlight of the whole thing. But uh, that's that's quite enough self-celebration for, for, for one podcast, I think. Well, did you take a screenshot of it, though? Oh, uh, only nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. what, there you go. Uh, so uh, we woke up on the day after, obviously, time zones, um, to one of our guys in Seattle messaging, is this guy's you? Is this you guys? Like, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that is us. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, what? I mean, it's what, ten days into free agency. Like, it's did, like, when, when, when you last spoke to Pete or John and the players kind of thing, did you did you get the sense that they were going to be um, more active as they have been this year? I mean, they splashed the cast and Draymond Jones, which we'll get into in a bit. But is what they've done is kind of like the vibe you picked up from the last time you spoke to them? Yes and no. So, I mean, all the positions that they've hit, those are the positions that you figured that they would have gone after. I mean, they, they needed defensive line help. Now, I didn't see them. I didn't. I saw them revamping their defensive line to some degree I didn't see it being the drastic overhaul uh, that it has been so far where basically anybody who was playing on the defensive line for that team last season is no longer there other than maybe like I don't know Miles Adams uh not counting the outside linebackers but you know the interior guys uh you know you run down the list of all the guys who are either haven't been re-signed and have signed elsewhere or have just been released and so um I thought there would be some turnover there didn't think there would be as much but I figured that that was a position they were going to have to add one or two guys just because you can't do all of that in the draft where, you, you know, even with all the draft capital they had, we knew that, you know, they weren't going to spend all of that on uh, front seven guys. And so it's not surprising that they have added some defensive linemen. They added an inside linebacker, uh, a center and Evan Brown. What I did not see coming was the giant splash on Draymond Jones. And, and the stat that I would give you is, just to, to, to give uh, listeners a sense of like how out of character that is in terms of the, the price that they went to, to sign Draymond Jones, you know, the under Pete Carroll and John Schneider. So since 2010, when they arrived in Seattle, the biggest contract that they've given to another team's free agents uh, on average was a little under $10 million. That was the two year, uh, roughly $20 million deal that they gave Yuchina Nwosu last off season. So $10 million was the top that they've gone in terms of per year average 
and then they go and give Draymond Jones, uh, what is it, 17 point something per year. So that just blew that deal out of the water and every other deal that they've done. And uh, they're just, they have not been a team that spends a lot of money in free agency. But I think this, uh, this big splash with Draymond Jones reflects a, the fact that you've got a quarterback on a very manageable cap hit. Uh, you've got a, a part of your nucleus is on their rookie, inexpensive rookie contract. So you do have some flexibility. Uh, and then Russell Wilson's contract is off the books. That's another part of it. And then the other part of it is just sort of desperate times call for desperate measures. And this team uh, with as bad as its defensive line and its front seven was last season, they really needed to make something happen. And uh, they did that with a big splash on Draymond Jones. Yes, because when Pete said what he said on the, it was the end of season press, so when he talked about how far ahead the 49ers defensive front is compared to his, that was kind of like, that's Jalen Carter, that's Tyree Wilson, that's Will Anderson. Like Draymond Jones was not in the conversation. That kind of adds to the the surprise as well as the financial one, doesn't it? Yeah, and I even heard that, you know, they were in talks with Zach Allen as well, who ended up going to Denver uh, from Arizona to help replace Draymond Jones. And I even heard that there was a, a, a period of time there where they're negotiating and the offers are flying around uh, that they thought they might be able to get both of those guys. So not only did they add Draymond Jones on this massive deal, they were trying to go after uh, Zach Allen as well. So um, it just gives you an idea of how big of a priority it, it has been and it is for them. And it will continue to be uh, to beef up that, that, uh, the personnel there. And we, I think, you know, everybody saw what happened last season. It was, I think, partly an issue of they just didn't adjust well enough scheme wise. And there were some, some, uh, you know, wrinkles in the scheme that they did not iron out as quickly as they thought. And then the other part of it was they didn't have the players who were right for that scheme. And they just didn't have enough impact players, period. Meaning if they were playing their old scheme, I think they still would have had some problems there because you just didn't have enough difference makers. And so they paid a lot of money for a difference maker in Draymond Jones. There's been a number of occasions where the team have gone into free agency in the last six or seven years. And, you know, in December, January, people were saying, wow, you know, the amount of cap space they've got, they could do some real damage. And uh, our friend, Michael Duke, Sean Dugars always said to us that, that the team spend their money, but they're ultimately cheap in how they do it in the sense of they'd rather split, split 40 million nine ways you know three and a half million a pop as opposed to going out and getting the you know the, the big splash and do you think the Nwosu deal maybe allowed a bit of sort of recalibration to go on because it's not a huge surprise really that the one person they spent the most money on has probably been their best free agency signing in a decade yeah I, I have been uh waiting for an opportunity to make that point as well because I've wondered the exact same thing is uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that this deal comes on the heels of the Nuosu deal, because I think that deal was a reminder to them that, yeah, look, it is a big risk, right? Anytime you're paying for another team's free agent, you're paying a lot of money to a guy that you don't know exactly how he fits in your scheme. You don't know exactly how he fits personality wise in your locker room. You don't have as good of uh, you know inside information on like his medical situation as you do with guys who have been in your system before. So it is a risk. And and look, frankly, a lot of these guys that are getting big money uh, right now or that did in last week when free agency opened, you know, these are guys that are going to be cut in two years from now because it teams realize that it's not worth it. So for all this Draymond Jones conversation, we're having about how big of an impact he has a chance to have in Seattle. Like this is a risk and it might not work out. But I think to your point, Adam, the Nuosu signing was a reminder to them. I think it could have been a good reminder to them that, yeah, it's a risk, but 
it can also pay off. I mean, by all accounts, everything I've heard, uh, he was just a, a, a really strong guy in that locker room, emerged as a leader. Remember, he was kind of um, kind of in the shadows, right, with the Chargers playing behind uh, Bosa and, and Melvin Ingram for a number of years, and they just loved everything about him. We all saw what kind of difference maker he was on the field, double-digit sack guy or almost a double-digit sack guy, played every game, uh, made plays against the run and the pass, and so – um, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that was maybe part of the reason. And I haven't had a chance to talk to Pete Carroll or John Schneider yet, but I, that is a question I plan on asking them is did that signing and how well it's worked out, maybe, maybe make them a little more willing to, to take a risk on another high price free agent. Uh, obviously the other, I saw a dream on the other big free agency splash, I guess they made was before free agency when they re-signed the quarterback, Gino Smith. I mean, from this side of, the pond, it seems like they the Seahawks have like kind of immediately won that deal with what, what we're seeing flying flying around by other quarterbacks in the league. Were you surprised at how not low? I mean, it's still a large chunk of money, but how what Gino took to stay as a quarterback in Seattle, or a little bit, yeah, and and not so much the size of the deal, but more so the structure. Now, I, you know, in, in this position, as you guys, I'm sure know, like you're asked to make a ton of predictions on everything. And so the, <laughs> the deal I predicted was, I think, three years and ninety million. So I thought it was going to be about thirty million dollars per year, and I really thought that there was where would would be no way to structure that to where you wouldn't be committing to him for anything less than two seasons. And so it's, it ends up being a three-year, $75 million deal with a ton of uh, money tied in incentives or a ton of additional money, I should say, available in incentives on top of the $75 million. Um, and I can't remember the exact guaranteed figure, but you know that contract is structured in a way that they could potentially get out of it after one season. Now, there would be some cap penalties, but uh, you know the money that they would save, the cash and cap space they would save, uh, versus the dead money at, you know, I, the way I read it, the way I've talked to other people who do this for a living, you know, contract analysts, um, they think that Seahawks could definitely get out of that contract after one season. Now, I think what's really interesting about the contract is the, uh, incentive package. And, and I shouldn't even say incentives because technically these are escalators and at the risk of nerding out and losing people who don't really care about the, the finer details of this stuff, I'll just explain the difference there. Like incentives, uh, you know, that's what Gino had in his one-year deal last year. He had $3.5 million available in incentives. With an incentive, as you guys know, once you hit that mark, once you reach whatever benchmark that is, whether it's passing yards or uh, touchdown passes or making the playoffs or playing time, you you get that money. You're, you're guaranteed that money once you reach that benchmark. These are different. These are contract escalators. And an escalator is something that escalates pay in future seasons. So in this case... Uh, it's a roster bonus in future seasons. So normally an escalator is tied to base salary the next year. In this case, it's a roster bonus. So uh, he's got $15 million available in escalators, both in 2024 and 2025, based on benchmarks from the previous season. Now, the, the reason that's interesting that it's in an escalator is because it's an escalator tied to a roster bonus. And the way a roster bonus works is you need to be on the roster to make that money. So whereas if, if this money was all tied in incentives, if Geno Smith, you know, tops 30 touchdown passes, uh, which is one of the benchmarks, if that was an incentive, then he would automatically get $2 million. In this case, it's $2 million escalator. So he could throw for 35 touchdown passes, 
but the Seahawks could cut him after this season and not owe him that $2 million. So it is significant and it isn't significant. You know, if he's hitting all these uh, escalators, that means he's having a really good season. That means the Seahawks are probably not moving on from him after this year, but is it conceivable that maybe he hits one or two of them and otherwise struggles? Uh, then that's $4 million that they don't have to pay him because they could conceivably move on. He's been exceptionally good at saying the right thing. Like obviously yes. with the with the Denver Broncos quarterback, he was famed for, you know, being particularly good at saying the right thing when he was in Seattle. But Gino, like it struck me that he's very good at talking about being a team guy and very good at this, but that actually counteracts quite a lot with some of his social media presence where he's quite aggressive and, and quite forthright and, you know, good, good for him, good on him. I, uh, I I tweeted out like afterwards or about a week or so ago that when you look at the deals, I don't think the agent did a particularly good job for his client in terms of, you know, the agent's job is to get the best deal. Like there's no emotion behind it. There's no, oh, he's happy. Uh, and there, were, there was a bit of pushback saying, oh, we know Gino's happy and he wants to spend money, you know, give the team more money. I, I kind, I, I don't buy that personally, but it strikes me that they went to Indianapolis expecting that they'd hear more good things and perhaps left fearing that they wouldn't maybe get as much as they wanted. And so pulled the trigger slightly early on the deal, because it does seem, you know, if you, if you, you pay someone for what they're going to do in the future, obviously, but he is the top 10 pro bowl quarterback from last year. It strikes me as still slightly premature and overall on the low side, what he's ended up with based on the conversations we had in December and January of he's going to get $30 million a year guaranteed. Yeah, it, it is. It is a little bit lower than what I thought. And I, I, I guess the reason why is, is twofold. It's, you know, a lot of the guys who were in the top to really any quarterback who gets paid, you know, a, a big amount of money, it's based on more than one season of production. And I'm sure that in the, over the course of the negotiations that John Schneider and Matt Thomas made that point over and over in as respectful of a way as possible is look, these guys, you know, uh, Josh Allen, um, Mahomes, like they're at that point because they didn't, they did it for more than one season. And now, I think the other part, and he made a good point about Indianapolis. Now, Gino didn't go to free agency. Obviously, this deal was done uh, a week or so before the start of the negotiating window. But we all know what really happens in Indianapolis. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, teams and agents have conversations and and maybe they, you know, they're not allowed to negotiate. And I don't know if if there's like a, you know, coded language that they speak in or if they speak in hypotheticals like, say, if I happen to have a uh, quarterback who would be hitting the market here pretty soon, what would you uh, <laughs> hypothetically be willing to pay him? But however those conversations go, agents can always get a pretty good feel for what kind of market there would be for their client. And so I would imagine that in this case, uh, his agent, you know, had conversations with other teams and, and got a feel for, um, you know, what what kind of interest there would be and what kind of price tag he would have if he did reach uh, free agency. And so I'm sure that that was part of why that number ended up being at 25 million. Now, in terms of having a lot of the, you know, $35 million tied to uh, escalators, uh, I, I imagine partly that's partly the fact that look, Gino is an uber, uber confident guy. And he feels like he is going to be better than he was last season. You don't really, you don't, you, know, you don't think of 32 year old quarterbacks, you know, still ascending. But I, I really think that he feels like he is, and it's it's conceivable, right? He, you know, he, remember he didn't even take all the number one reps 
last offseason when he was splitting those uh, with Drew Locke. And, and maybe I don't maybe he wasn't totally free to, to be, you know, what he could be um, in that situation. Now he is the guy. Uh, he takes really good care of his body. He's still got a ton of mobility that adds an extra element to his game. So I, I imagine that part of the structure of that contract is a reflection of Gino feeling like there's no doubt in his mind that he's going to be better uh, this coming season than he was last year. Well, um, we, we, we asked Nick um, a little bit about this last time we, we podded, but like about the surprise, maybe not surprise at what they did because see their athletes in like the 0.1% of NFL players making and playing in the league. They want to win every Sunday, but like, was from your vantage point, was there any surprise that they were able to have the success they had? Obviously, there was a down period after and around the Munich, the Germany trip and the bye week and everything else, but like, this this team had no hope for the playoffs. Pretty much anyone you spoke to who was uh, plugged into the league and they... I mean, really, we left left the season disappointed that they didn't win a playoff game, but we didn't go further in the in the into the playoffs. Were you surprised that the the consistency that this team has always been in the playoff conversation with Pete and with John was able to continue with such the seismic shift that they went through twelve months ago? Yeah, I I was surprised, and I think I had them at six or seven wins uh, before the season, and. You know, I, I was not of the opinion that they were going to be so bad that they would be in the mix for the number one overall pick. I just I never saw that happening. And just I mean, I, I realized that they moved on from their quarterback. They moved on from Bobby Wagner. But, you know, you just still had too many really good players there to be at that level. I mean, that that's you know, you look compare like the Texans roster last year to Seattle's and you knew that te- the Houston would be in that mix for that number one. Like they, you knew they'd be terrible. Um, those rosters did not compare to me. So my, my big question was the quarterback and even in training camp. And this is why it was why Gino's season was such a surprise to me. It's not just the fact that he had been a backup for most of the past seven seasons. It's that, you know, neither one of those guys, him or Locke really looked like spectacular. Like if you, if you were there, I was there every day at training camp. And I think most of the, anybody who else was there, like the other reporters would tell you like, Geno Smith did not look like a Pro Bowl quarterback in training camp. And, and it's that's not to say he looked that's not to say he looked like a, a backup, but you just didn't see it. It just didn't see like the consistency. You didn't totally you saw the accuracy. Like uh he has always been a really accurate guy, and you could see the really good placement, and you could see that both of those guys were really talented, but there were a lot of days there where the defense won the day, and it was pretty clear. And as we all know, this defense wasn't very good, at least in front seven, it wasn't very good. <laughs> Um, and their quarterback ended up making a Pro Bowl. So that's just one more reason why it was surprising to me because um, it it wasn't even clear to me that Gino was the better quarterback throughout training camp. And I, I even thought that um, up until the point where Locke got sick, I thought that he was going to overtake him and that they were going to go with him. And then he got COVID uh, and, you know, he was terrible when he came back from COVID, which you can understand. Um, so I, I didn't see Geno Smith's season coming and I'm not afraid to admit that. <laughs> but, does, but does that change how you view what they're doing now and what they're going to do in the draft and moving forward into camps and training camp? Does that change how you view how they talk about the 2023 team kind of thing as, you, as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Gino, I mean, look, it, it's the the whole QB conversation is fascinating because I think that Gino could be better this year than he was last year. 
And I also think that they could take a quarterback in the first round. Now, I, I think it's more likely that they go with a defensive guy at number five or whether it's taking at number five or trading back a few spots. Um, I just think that, you know, there's this is a rare opportunity to find a difference making defensive talent that they just haven't been in position to get really ever since they've been there. Um, and so that's what they need right now. And I, I realized that you, know, you could say the same thing about quarterbacks, like they're not in position to take the top quarterbacks uh, and they don't plan on picking in the top five again. But the fact of the matter is you're going to, you know, you're picking at five, at least uh, three quarterbacks are going to go before them. Another team could trade with Arizona. Another quarterback needy team could trade into the three spot to get a quarterback. So I mean, you're not getting your pick of the litter. Um, maybe the guy, maybe there's a guy that they really like, and maybe that guy happens to fall to them because other teams have their quarterback board stacked differently. But uh, I just think that it's it's got to be a defensive player at that spot, whether it's five or trading back. I don't think you can afford to, you know, trade back to from five to like 17 because then, you know, you're just not getting the type of difference-making guy that you could get in the top 10. But um I, I think the more likely route is a quarterback with that first pick. And then maybe it's a quarterback with the second first round pick or one of the two second round picks, or maybe there's, you know, you move back from 20 and, and you pick up another second round pick. I think they could take a quarterback within the first couple of rounds. I just don't think it's going to happen at five. It's just, it's just fun. Adam. Do you think it always has been personnel or, or is personnel at the moment when it comes to defense? I mean, Stuart and I have joked in the past that Pete Carroll kind of, has had a couple of purges of his coaching staff, like Don Corleone and the Godfather, like at the end of one and two, where he just whacks everyone, but he survives. And it kind of feels like we're in the third iteration of that with the defensive line, with what he's done, where just kind of anyone that was anyone is has been whacked and, and is out of there. Do you think it is necessarily a personnel thing, or is this a case of, you know, when a coach has loads of leverage, they can kind of do whatever they want, buy themselves as much time, and uh, say it's a personnel thing because from everything that you know, you read from some of the tape guys and people that are studying this stuff, it, it sounds like perhaps it's not necessarily just personnel, but you know, perhaps there's some coaching things from the top down that need to be addressed uh, that could even be more important than, than who's actually you know the guys out there. Yeah, no, I, I like as it relates to the the way that they've really turned over their defensive line. I, I do think that part of it is that those guys aren't good scheme fits now. On the flip side of that, that's the easy thing to say when they move on from a guy. And and they probably, maybe more so than any other organization or as much as any other organization, like they're really mindful of how they treat guys on the way out. And it's a lot friendlier to say, look, this guy, he just wasn't a great scheme fit. Uh, it's sort of like, it's not you, it's me when you're breaking up with somebody. Uh, that's a lot nicer than saying, yeah, this guy just can't play. Now, I think let's go like sort of the individuals here with some of their defensive linemen. I think with Shelby Harris, that was not a scheme fit because I think he was probably the best guy for that scheme. Remember, he had played in Denver, which ran a similar scheme. And I'm sure that that was part of the reason why, um, you know, they they wanted to get him back in that trade. Although I actually think that they really wanted Draymond Jones couldn't get Draymond Jones. And so they got Shelby Harris instead, but he was a guy who fits that scheme. And I still think that he could be back. Um, I, it just didn't make sense to keep him at $9 million, which I think is what he was going to make this season. So with Shelby Harris, I think it was just more about the $9 million price tag with Puna Ford. I do think that is partly the fact that he's, he's maybe better suited for the scheme that they used to play. 
uh, with Al Woods, I think it's just the fact that he's 36 years old, um, maybe wore down a little bit late last season. And with all of the big moves that they made with paying, you know, Draymond Jones with paying uh, Julian Love, which is another fascinating addition. You know, they were, as we talked about, m- way more aggressive in free agency than they have been. And they, they've they been up against the cap uh, and they've also been up against it cash wise. And so I think that was the reason they moved on from uh, Al Woods, LJ Collier, we know the story on him, just just wasn't, this was this didn't work here. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean, to, I don't mean, I don't need to bury the guy any more than he's already been buried. But yeah, so I think there was a number of different reasons why you've seen them revamp uh, this defensive line so far. It's, it's not only uh, scheme, I think it's just impact, money, age, it's a lot of factors. On, on, on Julian Love, I mean, that might, Jamon Jones obviously got the headlines with the cash and Gino and everything else. But as you said, then that, that might be the most interesting. Like that, that that is like versatility, isn't it? That kind of brings that they could do a lot of things with him and with him playing like the normal roles because he played everywhere for the Giants last year, I think. And like that 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 was like ah oh, okay that kind of what, what what does that kind of mean? That was that that was one of them kind of signs, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was a signing that made a lot of people scratch their heads and jump to uh, the conclusion about Jamal Adams. Now, <laughs> I, I think this signing is is tied to Jamal Adams in a number of ways. I don't think it means that they're going to cut Jamal Adams. Uh, the dead money, for one thing, it, it's just too, in, in my opinion, and I think they view it the same way, the dead money versus what they would save, it just doesn't make sense dollars and cents wise. I think it's a $24 million dead money charge right around there. And I checked with our uh, people at ESPN who uh, have access to kind of like the historical data on this. I think that would be the seventh, sixth or seventh highest dead money figure that any team has ever taken on by moving on from a player. And it would be the second highest for a non-quarterback. So um, the other part of that is even if you, even if you designate him a post June one release, you do end up saving $8 million against the cap this coming year, but you don't get that savings until June 2nd. So keeping Adams, that's not really freeing up any immediate cap space because he wouldn't get it for another few months. I think that the potential for him to uh, be an impact player for them still and to get back to what he was a couple of years ago, I think that's worth um not having that $8 million in cap space. Now cash is another factor there. So I don't mean to totally boil it down to that, but um, I, I think he's going to be on this roster and this is going to be a, a, a make it or break it season for him. Now, lost in all of the Adams conversation and speculation is the fact that Julian Love is a pretty good football player. And mm. they thought that he was going to get a lot more money than he did in free agency. I think they thought he's like a 10 to $12 million per year guy. And they were surprised that he was still there, you know, five days after the start of the negotiating window and available on a t- two year uh, it's been reported as two years, 12 million. I've not seen the actual contract. So the base value of that, you know, that might include incentives. So where it's actually like a two year, 10 or $11 million deal. I don't know that, but at any rate, they're paying him starter money. And it's, it's partly reflection on Adams because I think there is some concern that Adams uh, might not be ready by the start of the season. And maybe he has to start the year on PUP, which means missing the first six games. Uh, but even when Adams is back, I think they want to use him as a linebacker. Remember, that was the plan last season uh, was to play him in, in more of a linebacker role. And if you go back and watch the play where he got hurt in the second quarter of the opener against Denver, he's playing linebacker. Where and You've got Quandre Diggs uh, and Josh Jones on the field as the two safeties. 
and you've got uh, Adams playing linebacker alongside Jordan Brooks. And so I think they want to do more of that. They also want to have their bases covered in case Adams uh, gets hurt or isn't ready for the start of the season. What, where, where does Ryan Neal fit into all that? Because he was probably one of the, alongside Gino, maybe one of the biggest surprises of the season of, of non-rookies, I guess. But like he's, has he been, he's been tendered, hasn't he, as well? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Completely yeah, part so, on how that works, but yeah. So, so he was tendered as a restricted free agent, which I think is a means a, a one year offer at a salary of I think two point six two seven million dollars. It's around two and a half million dollars. Um, so that gives him the opportunity. If another team wants to to sign him to an offer sheet, they can make him an offer on a multi year deal, or I don't. Maybe you can go one year deal. I'm not sure, but they can make him an offer. And, and if he signs it, the Seahawks have the opportunity to match that. Um, so as of yet, we have not heard any news about any other offer for Ryan Neal. And you know, you were right. He was really good last year. And really, he's been kind of an unsung hero for them going back to 2020 uh, when he had to step in for Adams, when Adams missed the four games with, I think it was a groin injury. And then in 2021, again, when Adams missed the uh, the final few games of the season with, I think it was a shoulder injury. And then uh, for basically all of last season, while Adams was out with the torn quad tendon, he's been really good. Um, You know, the fact that they tendered him for two and a half million dollars, that's the low tender, which doesn't come with any sort of draft pick compensation, right? So any team can write him an offer. And if the Seahawks don't match that offer, there's no draft pick compensation tied to that. So he's basically an unrestricted free agent at this point. Um, and they, they and they're offering him two and a half million dollars. The fact that they paid, they are paying uh, Julian Love basically twice that. We don't know exactly what the per year average is, but that suggests to me that they they feel like Julian Love is a better player and that they would prefer to keep uh, Neil in that third safety role. Um, now Ryan Neal is a heck of a player. He was maybe their outside of Yuchenna Nwosu. I mean, he was probably one of their three best defensive players last year. So. It is a good situation for them. I think Ryan Neal um, and Julian Love, you know, they're on short-term deals, but I think those guys could be long-term options, you know, with the fact that Adams, as I said, I think he's in a make-it-or-break-it season. Quandre Diggs is getting up there, uh, 30 years old, and he has two more years left on his contract. So they've got a lot of money tied up at safety, uh, and I think that's partly reflection of, you know, they've got some younger guys in there who may be ready to take over if they decide to move on from, Adams and or Quandre Diggs. Stuart always has a go at me at this time of the year because uh, I always uh, am going to wait for him to put his headphones on because I'll probably laugh at this. But I was saying that Stuart always has a go at me this time of year because I'm always saying, like, oh, my God, we have like 23 players that I've ever heard of that are currently signed <laughs> to the roster. We have to sign like 65 players in the next two and a half months to just to be able to go to camp. It does appear like that process has started. Um, they gave Devin Bush more money than I was expecting. And I, I guess, look, I, I have to hold my hands up as a bit of a Pete Carroll skeptic at the moment. I have been for probably four or five years. He's, I think you know, he's done an amazing job. He's not necessarily the person that I think should still be in charge, but he is, so whatever. But it does sometimes feel like they leave themselves in a position whereby they have to do a lot of work. They don't have, They haven't got holes to fill, but they could potentially have an awful lot of holes to fill if these hedges that they end up spending like enough money on to be significant don't don't come good is there any fear that you know you, you could end up in, in the middle of camp thinking well there's a hole there there's a hole there the hole there's a hole there and this does kind of need to be the draft where it all takes place because this is the last time where we have that sort of bumper amount of, of 
of uh, assets to use to fill that gap. Yeah. And, you know, look, there is still a lot more work. I think, I think what they've done so far is a nice head start and, you know, they needed to add at least one linebacker and, and probably two just because, and, and when I say linebacker, I mean, inside guys, just because, you know, Jordan Brooks was hurt so late in the season. I think it was in December that you, Pete, I would have a hard time seeing him being ready by the start of the season. So he could be another guy who starts on PUP um, and they lost Cody Barton in free agency. So I, I definitely think they've got to do something else at inside linebacker. In addition to Devin Bush, who's on a one-year deal. I've got the figures in front of me. It's one year, 3.5 million with almost 3 million guaranteed. Uh, and you got a one in a $1.25 million signing bonus. So uh, yeah, they've got to do something else there, but I think that they've gotten themselves to a point where they can go into the draft and not totally have to go any position at any one spot. And, and there is, is a, obviously a big danger in being in that position. Now, I, I do think that they, you know, it's, it's, I think they'd be hard pressed to not take a defensive front seven guy, a D end or a D tackle or an outside linebacker with that fifth overall pick, because that position is still such a need, but you could conceivably get that with your second first round pick or one of the two second round picks, you know, go back to let's talk about the LJ Collier pick. Cause you know, that's sort of um, the end of the LJ Collier era uh, just happened. <laughs> you know, go back to the 2019 draft. I think that was a lesson learned for them because uh, they took LJ Collier because they felt like they had to, because the cupboard was so bare uh, in terms of edge players. Remember they had just traded Frank Clark a couple of days before the draft. And even before, even if Clark was still there, that position would have been a huge uh, bare spot for them. And it, remember, it wasn't until May that they signed Ziggy Ansa because they didn't know they didn't know they'd be able to do that. And it wasn't until right before the start of the season that they traded for Jadeveon Clowney. So they went into that draft feeling like they've got to get an edge player early. And by the time it came to the 29th pick, they felt like there was such a big drop off after Collier that they had to take him there. Now, certainly they they misjudged uh, Collier. Now, I, I think that they probably had him rated as like a second round guy, but they just considered it such a big need that they had to reach for him there. And so the lesson there is don't go into a draft feeling like there are spots that are so bare that you have to address it in a certain position in the draft. So um, they really need help still in their front seven, but I don't think that they have to necessarily do that uh, they don't necessarily have to take a linebacker at this spot. They don't necessarily have to take a uh, you know a defensive end, defensive tackle guy at number five. I think they've got some flexibility, but certainly with one of their two first round picks, uh, and I think with at least two of their first four picks, they've got to address that front seven. Um, I suppose the sorry, Stu, I suppose the issue there is that if Devin Bush isn't good, then they have a linebacker, but they don't have a linebacker. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, and it kind of leaves himself in a position whereby they haven't, and, and and I'm probably speaking from two sides of my mouth here because I also don't want them to chase. I don't want them to get cute in the draft, but it does worry me sometimes that you have these players in the NFL that when they play for anyone else, they're terrible. But when they join your team, oh, this is the guy. You want to see this guy. You see him flying around when he was at, at Michigan. And I, I have a slight fear with a couple of the signings they've made here that people say, oh, well, you know, they, they, you know, they filled that gap. But they've only filled that gap if that person performs to a level that we haven't seen them do it at, because otherwise their previous team would assign them. 
Yeah, right. They, they've filled it with a player. That doesn't mean the player is going to be you know, very I'll, good. I'll take three million to pay linebacker <laughs> if they want me to. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm probably I'll not going to be very good. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll get one of those you know cowboy collars on or like you know, things that protect your neck. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And, and look, this is true of any free agent. It's like there. It's easy to get caught up in the you know sort of Christmas like you know feeling of it, where it's it's this new thing that you got and it's going to be great. And then you know, like you said, it's a great point. And this applies to Draymond Jones too. It's like, okay, well, this guy is a free agent in the first place because his old team deemed him uh, a, a player that wasn't necessary to be kept. And if you look at uh, Devin Bush in particular, you know, going back to late last season, he lost his starting job. He wasn't a starter by the end of that season. And so um, he was a guy who was probably overdrafted just because that's pretty early to take an off the ball linebacker. Uh, you know, his first season, he was pretty good. He had a couple interceptions at a hundred, you know, well over a hundred tackles, some impact plays tore his ACL in his second season. It really hasn't been the same since then. So he's been a starting caliber player. Uh, the question is, you know, can he be a difference maker? He is still 24, 25 years old. So he's a young guy and, and, you know, it's conceivable to think that his best football could be ahead of him. But yeah, I think your point is a good one. Uh, and especially because, Look, this is a guy who wasn't even a starter by the end of last season. Yeah. Um on on that position, on that obviously a lot of chat is um certain people on uh ES, well, it used to be ESPN radio and Seattle, Seattle Sports Radio. Um it is the Bobby Wagner conversation is an interesting one because it's it seems like he let he 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 asked for his release from the Rams because he wants to be he wants to win another ring, he wants to play and win another Super Bowl. That that's that's quite a leap for him to make to come to the Seahawks because it doesn't seem like that's the the precipice that they're standing on at the minute. Like as as good as they were and as as good as the moves that could be for the twenty twenty three season, it kind of feels like Wagner wanting to win the Super Bowl and coming back to Seattle is kind of crossing streams a bit. Do you do you see that move happening or? Well, I you know I think with him like if if you you could probably only identify like maybe four or five teams right now that you could say right now on March 23rd this team is definitely a Super Bowl contender. So yeah. if that's if that's like your criteria then you're really limiting your market. I I think players generally look at it especially guys who are in their 30s like him or probably look at it as just give me to a contender and mm-hmm. and we'll you know hopefully they can be Super Bowl contenders but just give me to a team that's capable of making the playoffs. Now I, I would guess that he really wants to come back to Seattle. And I would also guess that, you know, the Rams, that there was a conversation there where, you know, they told him, hey, we're sort of cleaning house here, <laughs> um, you know, getting rid of Jalen Ramsey, getting rid of Dante Fowler. They've really shed salary. And this is a step back year for them. And so it didn't make sense for them uh, to keep Bobby Wagner at 33 years old, as good as he was for them last season. So I would imagine that, you know, there's probably – it's it's just like you just you know there's probably only a handful of teams that he would want to play for in the first place and then the question is okay which of those teams need middle linebackers then the question is which of those teams you know have the money to and the interest in him to to meet that price tag and so um when you whittle it down like that like that potential list of teams starts to to really dwindle and so i have not talked to bobby i don't know what he is looking for i would imagine that um, you know, the Levante David deal in Tampa Bay would be kind of a starting point for him just because two guys from the same draft class, uh, roughly the same age 
And Wagner has had a better career than Lamonte David. And, um, you know, last year he was the better player. And so I would imagine that he's not interested in taking anything less than $7 million. Again, that's just my guess. Um, I don't think the Seahawks would, would want to go that high for him. Now, if, if it got down to three, $4 million, um, then at some point it just becomes too big of a bargain to pass up. And I think the Seahawks would do that, but I don't think that, uh, they would want to go as high as like the Levante David territory, at least right, at least not right now. The other thing I would say about Wagner is remember last year, he didn't sign with the Rams until it was either the very end of March or the beginning of April. It was, it was right after the owner's meetings. So, and he got, ended up getting a good deal. I know he got cut and he didn't make all that money, but I think he made 10, 11, $12 million on a one-year deal, which for a 32 year old linebacker, that was, that was pretty good. So the point is he waited uh, he was patient and he did pretty well for himself. And so I think he's willing to be patient again. That would be my guess. Uh, obviously, if it gets to three or four million dollars, that becomes, I don't want to say pocket change because it isn't. But it, 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 so do, do you envisage that as a deal that because I, I'm looking at it thinking that it's super admirable that the Seahawks have never had to tank basically or shed money or, or accepted like that this isn't going to be our year and they do try and refill the jet whilst it's at 30,000 feet and I respect that but Mina Kimes had a tweet about the Saints which said you know for, fair play to the Saints for always being competitive it, I just don't exactly know what they're competing for and that there's a little bit of what Seattle are doing at the minute if they were to sign Bobby Wagner that w- would give me that kind of vibe like great to have the guy maybe his you know wins above replacement is worth one or two but you know that th- it comes to a point where is that money almost not better rolled off or rolled over in- into next year aside from the nostalgia and you know it'd be lovely to have the guy back it's kind of what, what what's the end that that's a deal that would kind of as I say I'm, I'm not the biggest Pete Carroll fan but I can see what they're doing and I, I fully respect that they're sticking to a philosophy and trying to mold the team around that this would seem like a bit of a jump away from that to to a point where nostalgia is being lent upon too much yeah, well, it would it would be a departure in terms of what it, it seems like they're really trying to get to do this free agency, which is get younger. You know, with the exception of the Jaron Reed deal, you know, Julian Love is 25, Devin Bush is 24, 25, Draymond Jones is 26. Um, and, you know, so signing a 33-year-old guy would would not be congruent with that. But I just think at some point there is such a need there, an inside mm-hmm. linebacker, um, and at some point, you know, he, he just, he has to become the best option if his market is that low. And I don't even know if he would do that, frankly, he's guy has made enough money that I don't know if he would have any interest in playing at that level, but I'm just saying at some point at that price point, that Mm -hmm. would be your best option. Now um, I don't think that they are going to factor in the nostalgia element to it. I I don't think they're going to have sentiment you know, be any sort of factor in their decision. I think they're going to make a football decision. In fact, I think that they would maybe even, I wonder if they would maybe be reluctant to do it, knowing Mm -hmm. that you're going to have to go through that breakup and that painful uh, breakup all over again. Now, Mm -hmm. if it was a case where Wagner said, look, I want to play one more season. I'm going to give it one more go uh, with the team that drafted me and going back home. Then I think that would ease some of the pressure there, but he's a guy who's still playing at a really high level and, and, so I don't know if if that would uh, maybe he wants to play for two or three more seasons. And I just wonder if the Seahawks would be reluctant to sort of, you know, put that Band-Aid back on only to have to rip it back off. Yeah. Um, c- quickly going back to last year, so your job is somewhat reliant on striking up relationships and getting quotes and getting stuff from 
players. I mean, as I said, it's a seismic change the team went through by releasing Wagner and trading the quarterback away. What what what, what was that like? Kind of asking questions of people you maybe hadn't had that many conversations with and trying to strike up that relationship with those, with obviously the six or seven rookies who made impacts last year was, I mean, that, that, that must've been like a, a refresher for you guys as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a different locker room and you saw some other guys, you know, emerge in, um, you know, sort of very forward facing roles like DK Metcalf was doing a, a weekly uh, press conference. Basically, I think it was in the, the slot that Bobby Wagner used to do it. And so um, there was enough, and they carry over from 21 to 22 to where it wasn't like, you know, completely new guys. There was still, you know, the uh, Ryan Neal in there, who's a really good guy to talk to uh, after a game and, and during the week, he's, he's one of you know what we would call go-to guys where, you know, win or lose, uh, he's not going to blow you off after a game and he's going to actually give you some really good insight. And, and, you know, he was great because he, he is somebody who really, um, he's unfiltered and he, he just tells you how it is. And Quandre Diggs is the same way, kind of maybe in, in a little more surly way. Uh, but he's a guy who is equally, you know, he will tell you what happened and he will, um, you know, there's a level of accountability, a level of honesty there that he, as a, as a reporter uh, you just really appreciate. And, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, look, these guys play like a really emotional game and that defense in particular did not have a very good season last year. And I always, you know, there, there'd there be times, a lot of times, not necessarily last year, but just in general, when you're covering a team, like sometimes guys just don't want to talk. And if it happens every now and again, you know, I'm inclined to give a guy a pass, even though it, it's technically part of their job. They're supposed to talk to us post game, but I give guys a pass because I know that if I was them and if I had a bad day, like I probably wouldn't want to talk to me either. And so um, I understand it, but, you know, by and large, most of those guys, uh, Ryan Neal, Quandre Diggs, Quentin Jefferson was another really good guy. Like it's admirable that they were as willing to talk to us afterwards as they were every time, no matter how bad it got for that defense. And so for all the turnover, there were still a lot of go-to guys in that locker room. Yeah. Speaking to Nick last time on the pod, it actually struck me that he said that, you know, in general, it's just like, seems like a group of really nice guys. He was full of praise for the rookies, just being good guys uh, nice to have around the place. And I think back to when Cliff Averill, I think, was on a show last last year and said, you know, the Seahawks want to try and catch lightning in a bottle. And obviously there's a, a talent element to that too. But I wonder if you notice maybe a change in general mindset in the locker room and, and that could in part from Cliff mean, you know, lightning in a bottle of trying to capture and harness so many massive personalities and turning them into a team you know, with that one focus, one direction of the LOB, and, and they got l- not lucky because Pete Carroll was a master of, of of managing that. But does it feel like there's a different ethos in there that, like, we're going to have, not that the LOB guys weren't nice guys, but they had that mindset, and this is kind of a good, wholesome group, if, if for want of a better expression. Well, you know, I actually think that they would tell you that they got in a little bit of trouble going away from that personality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you were talking about the, the LOB, and I think what really defined that era of Seahawks football, it was a lot of guys with attitude, like really <laughs> like different alpha male type guys. Like, I don't know what words I can say on the podcast, but whatever you want, whatever you want. like those guys were were some mean, tough you know, dudes. And, you know, that was a plus uh, in a lot of ways where, you know, there was a level of accountability 
You know, there was Earl Thomas walking up to the defensive lineman in practice one day in 2014 and getting in their grills because they were eating sunflower seeds and he felt like, you know, they were being a little too lackadaisical during practice. There was, you know, Brandon Browner stepping over uh, Terrell Owens in training camp, like Allen Iverson after he, you know, threw him to the ground. There was, you know, Richard Sherman, you know, doing everything that Richard Sherman did, fighting with Doug Baldwin, his best friend in practice. Like there was an attitude to those guys. Uh, during that era of Seahawks football that really, you know, was a benefit in a lot of ways. Now it was a dual-edged sword too, because that same attitude, I think um, made for, you know, when a lot of those guys were on the tail ends of their time in Seattle, like some of that same personality, some of those same personality traits, like really made for some difficult, um, you know, awkward kind of relationship stuff where it, it, it went sour with Richard Sherman. It went sour uh, with Earl when he wanted the new contract it went sour with Michael Bennett when he was um, you know really not seeing eye to eye I don't think with management with coaching staff uh, towards the end of his time and frankly from, from what I've heard like they they sort of got sick of that and they ended up maybe subconsciously or consciously really going for easier going guys mm-hmm. in the draft because they were just like this this like they didn't want to deal with the headaches anymore and you know they got fewer headaches, but they lost some of the edge in their locker room. And that was actually a big reason why part of the reason why they traded for Adams is they felt like they needed not only his pass rushing skills, the sideline to sideline, like they needed the football player. They also needed the sort of attitude adjustment in their locker room. And so, um, you know, there there's John Schneider has talked about it too, about how, you know, they didn't do a good enough job for a number of years there in the draft of finding guys who were willing to compete, with those LOB guys. Cause a lot of them came in and they were like, look, like I, I played with this guy on Madden growing up. How am I going to compete with them? Like there, there was this, there was too much admiration and not enough competition. And so I feel like they are trying to find the right balance there of finding guys that are good, solid human beings, but also guys with a little bit of, you know, alpha male to them guys who are not afraid to mix it up and hold each other accountable and uh, just play and live with an attitude. Uh, that, that feels like the same kind of thing they're going through at wide receiver. That like we we've, we're lucky enough to have Doug Baldwin on uh, two years ago, and he, mm. he was talking about how Tyler Lockett coming to that locker room and just immediately like slid in, f- like fit into the wide receiver room and everything else. Where it kind of feels like along the same ways that maybe the reason they haven't found that third guy through the draft and all the guys they've talked will be the. the at different stages of the draft, that kind of hasn't popped. They've had to go and find a Marquis Goodwin or take a flyer on a Dorit Young. Is that that kind of fits the same kind of model, doesn't it? At wide receiver, just to a lesser extent, I guess, with DK and Tyra. Yeah, it's you know they've that's been kind of a difficult position for them to find that third guy, and certainly they thought they had him in in D Eskridge, and and I don't think you can like totally close the book on him, but I I don't also don't think you can. I think we're at a point with D Eskridge where you just can't count on him uh, to be what you thought he was going to be. He's been hurt uh, for a good chunk of the two seasons he's been there and he's missed so much time that I think that's really hampered him on the mental side too, where he has, he's missed so many reps, whether it's game reps or practice reps to where I think he was, he's just been behind from a mental standpoint and, you know, you can be off to the side, you can be studying the playbook, you can be working on things, but there's no replacement for those, actual physical reps that and he's just missed a lot of them and so 
I'm not like, I don't, they're not going to give up on him, you know, uh, but I don't think that they could count on him at all being that number three guy. So that's, that's another position I could see them going early in the draft. And, you know, I, I, some people may have scoffed when they saw Jackson Smith uh, in Jigba uh, being mocked to the Seahawks at 20. And I think actually both of Mel Kuyper Jr.'s last two mock drafts, he had, uh, he had that receiver at that spot there. And I, I think that's entirely reasonable. Um, even though you've already got maybe the best one-two duo in the NFL, or at least one of the best, you still need, look, the NFL these days is played with three receivers on the field and the Seahawks are no different than that. So I, you've definitely got to solidify that position. You can't count on uh, DS Gridge. They've tried to do it with other guys uh, and missed, but um, that's definitely a need for them. It's not as pressing a need as some other spots, but it is a need for them that they've got to, I think, take care of whether it's with, Another veteran like Marquise Goodwin, who I think was a really solid addition for them, considering what they paid, and they gave him a minimum salary contract, and he was he was a, a decent number three guy. And so, whether it's another veteran or it's a draft pick, they've got to solidify that spot. And if they draft the Ohio State uh, wide receiver, he will be known as JSN on this uh, podcast because I am not butchering that name every week. <laughs> yeah, and I think on Twitter as well because that's not that's not going to be one that you want to type in five, five times a day. Yeah, I don't... potentially slightly reductive, but Pete Carroll being in his early seventies and John Schneider probably feeling like he's in the the meat of his career. Could you imagine there being a slight disconnect on perhaps Schneider looking for the quarterback of the future, whilst Pete Carroll thinks he's got Geno? So maybe you know that that number five spot, Will Anderson, Jalen Carter. Thank you very much. I, I don't think that's reductive at all. I think that's a fair point, and and you know really that's like. Even if you remove Carroll's age from that, I think that is a common, um, just a common thing that like a coaching staff and a front office might disagree on. You know, the coaching staff they're more worried about, hey, we got to win games right now. We we need to make this roster as good as possible to win right now because coaches, you know, their jobs are more dependent on the win loss record immediately. The front office is generally going to be more inclined. Uh, to think long-term. And so I think that could be the case, especially when you talk about, uh, you know, a head coach who's 70, however many years old he is. Um, and especially when you, cause I, I imagine you're talking about quarterbacks, right. And mm. the quarterback for this team would be, that'd be a long-term pick, right. You've got mm. Gino, you know, Gino's going to be the guy for at least this year. I think especially so if you're talking about Anthony Richardson, who is, you know, I look, I haven't studied these quarterbacks as much as, uh, some of them, you know, other, some like the, the actual, you know, draft analysts have, and a lot of people have, but it's very clear to me that Anthony Richardson is behind those other guys in terms of his NFL readiness. So how long, what does that look like? How long does that take, uh, you know, for him to be ready? Certainly when I look at 50, you know, three point something percent completion rate, that's not a guy who is ready to play this season. And I don't know if it may even take a couple years of seasoning. And so, that is an interesting layer to the whole quarterback conversation is, is the front office maybe going to be more inclined than the coaching staff when the coaching staff is led by a head coach who, you know, maybe not, maybe he, he might be winding down or he may not even want to coach by the time that quarterback gets ready to play. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's kind of like kind of leads into my question. Like it's, this is a fun team to cover, even when it's not so fun watching the team, it, it must be a fun team to, talk to and listen to Pete and the players and the characters that you've had, you've dealt with over your time covering the team, isn't it, Brady? 
Yeah, there's, I like to say that there's never a dull moment on the Seahawks beat. And that was true, you know, in the LOB days when you had all those big personalities. And, you know, there is, I think there are fewer of those big time personalities now, uh, but it is still a fun team to cover. And I think, you know, we are lucky that Pete Carroll is a lot more media friendly than some coaches are. And, you know, I don't envy reporters who have to cover, uh, you know, Bill Belichick and to try to, you know, <laughs> pry injury information or any sort of information uh, out of Bill Belichick every day just seems like uh, that would be a grind. And so, you know, <laughs> Carol is good with that stuff. He's good with, you know, talking about guys and what makes them tick. And uh, he'll give you some good football insight, some good, you know, just personal insight. Um, and so, yeah, it's a fun team to cover. And, and he's been, he's been a good coach to cover. Yeah. Uh, also, you talked about players giving you access. What was Marshall Lynch like to, uh, try and get access to for a few years. I mean, because we, we, I think uh, we asked Nick, Nick Blow before like, for a few uh, broadcastable Marshawn stories, and I mean, everyone seems to have a Marshawn story, but what, what was he like to cover and try and get a quote and a question know, to? You know, early, or earlier in his career with the Seahawks, so, you know, remember he was he arrived via trade in 2010. For the first couple of years, it was – he was more accessible than he became. And now he wasn't really a guy who you would just walk up to like some other guys and have a long conversation with, but he would, he might do, you know, a, a post game scrum, uh, you know, every once in a while. And then it just became a, it got to a point where you just wouldn't even bother uh, because, <laughs> you know, it's just, that's, you're not, it just, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And so I think there was this perception that, uh, that reporters on the beat resented him for that. And I know that I never did. Like, I, I wish that he would talk because I think he's, he's a really fun guy. And and you always want to talk to the star players, especially when they have a big role in the game, but it never really affected. Like it, it was never a big deal to me. I just said, look, if the guy doesn't want to talk, he doesn't want to talk. Now it ended up being kind of an issue, I think because some national NFL reporters raised a stink about it. And I think they maybe even filed like an official complaint uh, to the NFL. And I think, Lynch may have gotten in, I don't know, I don't want to say reprimanded, but he may have gotten a talking to over that. And then that, then the story became that I think there was some misunderstanding that, and some thought that maybe the local, like the beat reporters uh, had made that complaint and that was not the case. And so uh, there was some brief tension there over that, but um, yeah, by the end of it, it was just, he just wouldn't really bother. Now he did. I think I asked him the, in all the time that I covered him, I think I asked him one question and it was after his last game uh, with the Seahawks. Remember he came back in that, in the 2019 season when they had all those injuries at running back and he played, I think in the week 17 and then in their playoff, their two playoff games. So after they lost um, in green Bay, the Seahawks brought him out to the podium uh, in the bowels of Lambeau field. And, uh, he gets up there and that's when he did the whole, you know, <laughs> take care of your chicken and your mentals thing. But um, I, I was like, look, I don't know if he's going to say anything. I don't know if this is going to be another one of those episodes where he's like, I'm only here. So I don't get fined. But I was like, I'm not going to go my entire career covering Marshawn Lynch <laughs> without asking him a question. So I think I jumped in with the first one. And I think I just said, what's going through your mind, uh, Marshawn. And I think he said, shit. We lost. <laughs> so, that was my one question. <laughs> and a, uh, predictably a very brief answer. Yeah. Adam? No, that's great. I mean, it's uh, 
it is an exciting time to be a fan. I think what it, it, I always say this with Stuart, it, it's slightly different for us because over here, the games start at either 6 p.m. <laughs> or 9 p.m. or 1.25 p.m. Yeah. And Stu and I take a trip to Seattle once a year or we'll do a road game and you realise how intoxicating the atmosphere is when you're there and the tailgating and the people and Blue Friday. And you realise how just amazing the culture is and how much you enjoy it. When we're over here, all we get basically is the games and you watch the game by yourself on the couch and you go to bed. Mm. So we kind of only have the wins and losses to hang a hat onto. And so when they're not winning, even if there is a process that goes into it or the team culture is good, it's quite depressing, to be honest, over here, especially when you've hit the heights of winning Super Bowls. And I think the last few years, I think the last four or five years, I don't think we've enjoyed it that much just because all we've had are these relatively disappointing performances uh, you know, relative to what we'd expect. And yeah. I'm hoping now that there's kind of a, on, on that upward curve again, that, that kicks off in the draft now, and we can sort of get back, back to that. And hopefully that's a vibe that comes across with, with the team that you're covering at the moment. Yeah. I, I think that they've got a chance now. The the whole question I had, you know, coming out of last season was how big is that gap with the 49ers and how closable is that gap in one season? Remember they played San Francisco three times last season and I wish I had the exact score differential in front of me, but it It was was, enough. Yeah. Yeah. It it was enough to really give you a sense that like that 49ers team is way, way ahead of Seattle. And can you close that gap uh, in one season? Now look, San Francisco, they, they're going to be breaking in a new quarterback and for as good as Brock Purdy looked uh, you know, late in that season and during the playoffs, he'll, he's a, a young guy who's going to be coming off a pretty serious injury. Uh, and they took some hits in free agency. And so, and the Seahawks, I think their roster is going to be better uh, with, you know, Draymond Jones, with some of their other moves, with the, you know, fifth overall pick and all the early draft capital. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much have they done and how, how much have they closed that gap with San Francisco. Um uh, because look, as we've seen, like it makes a difference when you are, you know, the number one seed in the NFL or you have home field advantage versus when you've got to go on the road and you've got to do it the hard way. And so, um, you know, look, we're only, you know, a couple months into the off season, so there's still a long way to go, but that's how kind of I view them. Like they are going to be a competitive team next year. They're going to compete. Like they're, they're, they, they're going to be, a, they should be a playoff team. The question is going to be, like, where are they in relation to the 49ers? Yeah, I mean, on, on those 49ers games, we were quite clever and got a 49ers fan on after the first one, not the second or the third one, but the first defeat. We decided to get a comedian who's a 49ers fan on it. He revealed himself to be, to be wearing a 49ers T-shirt just for us. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, one, one thing, I, I don't think... It, it's not really a thing with Sky Sports over here. How, how does your... Job covering the Seahawks for ESPN work because obviously it's, it's a national company, national TV network. How does that kind of? Because I, I mean, Adam, you might be able to speak better to this following a Premier League team, but there doesn't seem to be a Sky Sports Tottenham guy, but no. there's an ESPN Seattle guy. How, how, how does that work? How does that kind of work in reporting back to Bristol and everything? Yeah, so so I'm I'm stationed in Seattle. This is where I'm from. Uh, headquarters is in Bristol, Connecticut. So they, you know, bring us out there maybe once in off season for meetings, and we're going to do the meetings uh, virtually this year. But ESPN has a an NFL reporter 
uh, in every market. So every team has a reporter or they have a reporter for every team, all 32 teams in that market. And uh, so we're all basically remote employees. And, and I, I live here in Seattle on uh, Lake Union and I just, I work from home. So my office is basically my home or the Seahawks headquarters in Renton, which is about 30 minutes away here or whatever stadium they're playing in or whatever off season event I'm at. So um, it's a fun job in that regard where, uh, you know, I, I miss kind of some of the office environment that I had at my old job, but I, I also like being able to, you know, roll out of bed and go fire at my computer and not have to, you know, get ready and sit in traffic for 30 minutes going into work. Um, Cause usually by the time I go into the Seahawks facility, that's usually around noon, just based on their schedule. And then when it's the off season like this, uh, I'm working from home or finding a coffee shop. And so it, it is uh, some cool freedom and just being an NFL reporter in general, like you, you really, it's a grind during the season, especially now with a, a 17th game. And especially if the team you cover uh, makes the playoffs. So you're basically on a plane every other weekend and you're in and out of these cities and then you're flying back and you're, you know, going to the, driving out to the facility. Uh, and then, you know, when the off season comes, it's, it's sort of like a marathon. Like you just, you're always, got your eyes on the finish line and then the off season comes and uh, there's a lot more downtime and, but there's still enough going on to where you're not like totally removed from it. There's, you know, the combine and then free agency and then the draft and then uh, OTAs and mini camp. So it's, I just, I love the job. I love uh, the whole schedule of it. And uh, ESPN is a great company to work for. So with, with that, are you sort of meant to be, you know, on the beat, but like a voice to the other 31 fan bases, what's going on in Seattle, as opposed to speaking, directly to the Seahawks fans like a Bob Condota and Greg Bell and Michael Sean would be doing. Yeah. And some of that just depends on how you approach Twitter and, and how active you want to be on Twitter. I, I, uh, I'm looking at Twitter a lot. I'm maybe not tweeting as much as, as some of those uh, other reporters. And I think like from a, a content standpoint, you know, ESPN really tries to view it as like you are, writing stories like so we, we we write probably less often than certainly less often than uh bob condota at the times and and probably michael sean as well and the idea is you know espn they don't want us you know they want us writing stories that are going to appeal to not just seahawks fans but you know fans of the ravens or the jets like just nfl fans in general and you know if i'm writing you know six stories a week one of those you know several of those stories are going to be on less important topics that just aren't going to register on a national level or on, you know, to people and who are following the team from other countries and stuff. And so they really try to, to sort of have the content plan be more about quality over quantity and focus on the big names and focus on like the big, you know, picture stories and stuff. And so we end up writing less, um, but trying to get more bang for the buck out of what we do. Right. Yeah, that's Brilliant. yeah, yeah. That's it's really interesting. I, I did journalism at uni, and it, it was never because we spoke to Adam Amin, who covers or covered like four different sports for Fox Sports. And again, that's a different another thing we don't have over here. We have people who commentate on soccer, football, and that's it. And then we have rugby commentators where like, Adam has done college bas- base basketball, college baseball, baseball. Uh, NBA and NFL. It's just it's it's wild how different the kind of like the Swiss Army knife you have to be <laughs> over there kind of compared to the people over here. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is, you know, I, uh, 
gosh, I haven't watched a baseball game. I watched the the USA Japan game um, the other day, and that was the first baseball game I've watched in a number of years outside of like I went to one Seattle Mariners game last year. Um, you know, I only watch college basketball when the tournament is on right now. So yeah, the, the idea of being a jack of all trades like that, like that's completely foreign to me. And I really like being able to like totally sink my teeth uh, into one beat and one team. And you, you know, you're a lot more able, in my opinion, to, you know, really develop sources and whether it's from the team or the players standpoint or around the league. Um, so that's another thing I like about the job is they don't really ask me to to do other stuff. And it really allows me to focus on one thing and try to be as good at that one thing as I can. Yeah. Uh, did, did you make the trip over here in 2018 when the team came over? No. No, nor did I go to uh, Germany when they played in Munich this past season. And so typically what ESPN does for those international games is they will only send uh, one of the reporters because um, in that way, it's basically like, you know, if the Seahawks are playing the Bucks in Tampa Bay, you know, they're only paying for one reporter to go to that game because the other one lives in Tampa Bay. So there's only one trip that they've got to pay for. So uh, they will do the same thing with the the Europe games where they'll only send one reporter. So when the Seahawks played the Raiders in 2018, they sent uh, our Raiders guy there. And then when the, this past November, when they played the Bucks there, uh, they sent our Bucks reporter. And, and that decision was made, you know, when the schedule came out, remember everybody thought that Tampa Bay was going to be mm. a lot better than the Seahawks. Nobody really expected <laughs> anything of Seattle. So from that standpoint, and then also look, it's Tom Brady, uh, you know, the greatest football player of all time going to Germany for the first time. So uh, I, I I was, you know, bummed out not getting to go, but I understood it. And I also, I happened to uh, have gone to Europe in a- the April, last April, just on a trip to Europe, I kind of hopped around. And so I was able to see it. So that took a little bit of the sting out of not being able to go back. Uh, where did you go when you were over this side of the Atlantic? Oh, I was all over. I started in uh, Amsterdam, and then uh, took a train to Bruges, Belgium, and then flew to Prague. And then from Prague, I went to Poland to see Auschwitz and then took a bus to Berlin, spent a few days in Berlin. And then I took a train to Cologne, Germany, uh, where my favorite band, The War on Drugs, was playing. So I saw that band and then uh, went back to Amsterdam to fly back. So it was about two weeks five countries, I think six cities. And uh, yeah, it's a really good time. Did cool. it well. Did it well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the War on Drugs is a deep cut of a band as well. That's uh, that's a. Are you a fan? I've, I've, I've heard of them. I've heard like maybe two or three of their songs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but one, one, one of my favorite bands is Death Cab for Cutie. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is everything in Seattle uh, with me. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I believe, so I went to school in um, about 90 minutes north of Seattle in uh town called bellingham and i believe that he's either from seattle he might be from bellingham ben gibbard is the guy yeah yeah they he's from uh i think he's from capitol hill and he they all met at um the university in bellingham oh western yeah western washington university yeah Yeah. so that's where i went yeah 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 they all met up there that's that's like it's like the third person from bellingham we've had on the pod jackson's from up there isn't he adam yeah jackson bevins is from bellingham as well and danny o'neill or danny not danny (laughs) o'neill Danny Sorry. Kelly. 
Danny Kelly, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's one of our white whales on the pod. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so where, where, can, where, where can people catch all your stuff on, uh, obviously, SPM, but like, on social media and stuff? Where can yeah, people catch you? Uh, um... at, at Brady Henderson is my Twitter handle, and then uh, everything's on ESPN.com as well. Yeah. Uh, what, one more question, which only matters to me, Adam. Are, are you on a boat? I am, yeah. Is it, can you tell based on the background? I've always yeah, wondered. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the fire extinguisher and it, it like life jacket adjacent thing over your yeah. Right I'll shoulder. try to get you. A, I don't know if you can see it with the glare, but oh, there you go. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I live on a boat on uh, Lake Union, which is just a couple miles north of downtown Seattle. Yeah, that's really. You can cool. have Jimmy Graham land his helicopter on your boat and just uh, pop down for a cup of tea or something. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he was. I think I don't know if he knows how to uh, drive. C- fly seaplanes but there's a, a seaplane place like on the uh south end of the lake so you always hear those buzzing right over yeah, brilliant <laughs> uh, yeah as we say to our American guests whenever you're over in london and england you have to hit us up and i mean my go-to when i go to london for bars and restaurants is the other man on this conversation this zoom so whenever you're london is adding to your trip list make sure, particularly adam because that's his that's his backyard and, okay, uh, we'll, I will. We'll I hope, will keep that in mind, and we'll hope to see you in either New York or Tennessee this year when Stuart and I are hoping to uh, do a road trip out to one of those two towns this year. There you go. So here, here's something, and maybe, maybe I'm. Uh, hopefully, I'm not talking out of school on this, but so the Seahawks are scheduled to play a road game against the Titans, and I believe the Titans are scheduled to play yeah. a game in yeah. Europe. So I'm hoping that that game, yeah, uh, yeah. is in Europe. I don't know it's... if that's out of the question uh, at this point we're but, really uh, hoping that game's in tennessee than either 12 miles down the road from where i live or a hunt you know a one hour plane trip to munich I, I think i'd much rather go to uh to nashville to be honest yeah nashville is a really fun city one of my favorite cities uh in the nfl to go to yeah uh yeah massively appreciate you jumping on brady also massively sure. appreciate you uh shouting us out with the nick below news because it it would have been quite easy for you to just tweet out the below contract without mentioning this to idiots so we really do appreciate you you you, you're giving us our and the jew i think that kind of feels a bit like undeserved you got to give credit where credit's due you guys broke it and i thought that was really cool so uh that was cool and thank you guys for having me on this has been a blast yeah Uh, thank you all the usual means of methods spotify itunes podbean yeah this has been until next time this has been the pedestrian podcast go hawks